Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we welcome Andrew Marchese, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Fidelity Canada. Andrew provides his outlook and insights into the market landscape for 2023. He says the big story last year was rising inflation. For 2023, the main headline will be the manifestation of that inflation storyline. And because of this, 2023 will be all about homework. Andrew further explains that now is the time to do your research on a micro level. If the homework is done properly, we'll be ready for a new economic cycle. Currently, he and his team are carefully looking at companies, the health of their balance sheets, plus customer feedback. He says it's all about discovering the state of businesses. He says the play right now is risk off, but look for opportunities along the way. Andrew says even though headlines will look and sound bad this year, there are always opportunities if you look hard enough. He says he's looking out on a multi-year horizon rather than what will happen in the next three to six months. This podcast was recorded on January 12th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So, so let's start off with a, with a bit of an outlook outlook for 2023. You know, it's not a not a lot to look at here, but the last couple of weeks have been okay for equity markets. What are you looking at, and where do you think things might go? Yeah, I think you know if we recap to know where we're going, you got to kind of a little bit understand where we came from. So last year was very much about valuation resetting in pretty much all risk assets uh, due to one. Um, you know, higher than expected inflation, stickier than expected inflation, and the commensurate rise in interest rates in North America to the tune of about 400 basis points. And so that obviously compressed valuation multiples um, for equities, uh, real estate, other speculative risk uh, asset classes, obviously fixed income as well. And so now I think 2023 is the manifestation of those interest rate hikes into the main street and general economy. What we'll be seeing going forward is probably a slowing of the global economy, and we've already seen that uh, global PMI, manufacturing PMIs are now dipped below 50. Um, and now we have to kind of assess what are, if any, profit revisions going forward for publicly traded companies uh, in North America and Europe and Asia. And I think that's the next chapter in the book. So the interest rate hikes that occurred last year, you know, devalued risk assets and appropriately so there was many risk assets that were overvalued um and now those interest rate hikes are going to seep into the general economy and we have to measure their effects on corporate profits and cash flow going forward so i think that's the challenge for equity investors um in 2023 uh, let's let, tell me more about that so are you saying that you know we've seen these big rate hikes everyone's talking about these big rate hikes um are you saying they have not made their way, you know, through the economy yet? What like and, and what will that look like, I guess, when they do? Yeah, so if you if you think the rate hikes have really started kind of at the start of last year, historically, if you look at history as a as a precedent and as a guide, 
it takes anywhere from six to 18 months for interest rate hikes to kind of make their way through manufacturing, service, the general economy. Um, and you look for signs that that actually starts taking place. One of the first signs to look at is housing. So we know that housing, new starts, et cetera, other measures of housing health in both the United States and Canada have come off. Secondarily, you look at things like new orders. So leading economic indicators um, that show a slowdown or a peaking. And so we kind of saw that dating back to 2021. That actually started happening before the interest rate hikes started getting into the system. But then uh, the next step then is profits. And it looks like, based on Bloomberg consensus estimates, um, profit growth kind of peaked mid of last year. And so what we have seen, if you look at Wall Street and Bay Street estimates, is um, basically a few months back, uh, outlook for kind of Q4 2022 profit growth would have been 10%. It actually getting into the end of December came down to about 0% uh, growth year over year. So those earnings revisions, negative earnings revisions have started taking place. Now, if you look forward to Wall Street estimates for Q1 and Q2 of 2023, they've already been revised down to about negative, call it 1.5% growth. Uh, for each of those two quarters relative to about six to nine months ago there were forecasts for anywhere between five and ten percent growth in the market in general so obviously there's a danger in speaking to averages so this is where we come into play as active equity managers is to look where we think they're the greatest risk to profits and cash flow going forward and similarly where the most opportunities may exist in other words where people are either a not bullish enough or b too bearish so I, I got to ask, um, you're saying, you know, there are some indications that the economy is slowing and, and interest rates could work their way through. But, you know, last week there was 104,000 jobs added to the Canadian economy. That to me seems like um, things maybe aren't slowing down. What did you make of that number and why are we seeing some of these indicators maybe going in different directions? Yeah, Areas of service inflation, of which wages are part of that, is, are a lagging indicator. So is generally employment as a whole. So um, wages coming off and then possibly unemployment rising are going to be the most lagging of, of lagging indicators based on a business cycle, right? So it just tells you that the economy is continues to be strong. If you look at nominal GDP, it continues to be quite strong. So despite the fact that we've had 400 plus basis points of rate hikes in North America, um, things are you know, consumers are still consuming at a pretty high level. As you said, wage gains are still pretty strong. Employment's still very strong. So we would look for those things. Once those interest rate hikes that occurred, let's say in the middle to three quarters of the way through last year, start making their way to their economy, the sign for central banks will be, are they having a material effect? Or if not, do we have to keep along the path of tightening? So that's kind of where we sit right now. I think uh, both the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve have been quite transparent in what they plan to do. So this has been the most um, vocalized and communicated kind of path to rate hikes that I can remember uh, throughout the course of my 24 plus year career. Um, but we need to see that manifesting or how it's going to manifest in some company specific data and consumer specific data. So I know, you know, no one can pick, predict whether there's a recession is going to happen, even with infidelity, the, the, what kind of recession may or may not come is, 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 you know, different people have different ideas, but as you're planning as a portfolio manager, as a CIO, 
What are you sort of looking at or thinking in terms of the potential for recession? Could we have a big one, a short, a small one, none at all? But what, what's your sort of views in the way you're planning? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a fool's errand to call kind of recessions and then the magnitude and the duration of them. I think, you know, if you look at historical precedents and you look at any measure of the yield curve, which I still think is very much a uh, useful uh, and very strong measure. There's a cottage industry out there that kind of tries to devalue the, the importance of the risk curve. I don't, I'm not one of those people. I don't, I think it's still very telling. If you look at history, um, the 10 minus one year yield, um, has had a perfect, uh, batting average, if you will, accuracy record of calling recessions. It's very much inverted right now. Um, we'll see if, if the past is prologue kind of going forward, but rather than dwelling on that, what I'm trying to measure is, where equities in particular have adequately discounted the worst case outcome for a fall in profits for companies that tend to be more cyclical and for those that tend to be a little bit more stable to the other side how much are we really paying for defense at this point in in the cycle so last year leading sectors were kind of staples energy and utilities well when you kind of go through them on a case-by-case security by security basis really how much are we really paying for that defense going forward on a risk adjusted basis or a risk reward basis? Is it better cycle some of that capital to the more cyclical ends of the economy if they are indeed discounted sufficiently and wait for things to turn and then eventually rise? So that's a lot of the exercise we're going through right now. I, I, I tend to think this year is, is, I've called it the homework year, where I think we know what to look out for, but we're not all the way there yet. So if we were on a you know, for all the parents out there who have taken a car ride with their children, you always get asked, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Meaning, are we there yet to start a new investment cycle? No, we're not there yet. And the best we can do right now is look for the guideposts along the way to indicate if we're getting closer and the homework being done should be really at a security valuation perspective to say, risk reward, you know, upside downside, am I better off kind of cycling to what are typically more riskier areas of the market because they've been adequately discounted and I'm getting paid to wait. And I think that's the exercise that I've been counseling our, our staff to really kind of look at and examine. Uh, because I think generally speaking last year, we were kind of more defensively positioned in general, uh, more higher quality positioned in general. Um, and, you know, along a, ver a, a myriad of metrics. And so just kind of continuing to kind of do our homework on that uh, in that vein and trying to determine when is going to be the opportunity that we need to capitalize on to kind of change that um, mix of the portfolio, if you will. So I just want to clarify. So right now, um, still this sort of risk off kind of play and then but looking at the opportunities at, at sort of when to go risk on is that those that's what you're looking at. And, and I guess I think that's what a lot of people are wondering now. I think the market's going to be kind of an ebb and flow type of market this year. I think there's peop, some people pointing to optimism about China reopening. So kind of getting rid of the zero COVID policy and that that will generally get China out of their growth recession. So there's that speculation there. You've seen some risk assets even in Q4 since about mid-October kind of rise. Um, and then you're going to see, you know, possibly some more negative earnings revisions by Wall Street kind of going forward in some select industries. If, again, passes prologue, those interest rate hikes that occurred, you know, six months ago should start showing up in the second half of the year. And what does that do for aggregate demand for various services and goods? And so that's the stuff that is still to come. And I think it's being offset with some optimism about 
you know, maybe possibly some reopening in China, maybe some valuation um, spread gap closing between North America, chiefly the U.S. and Europe. So it's kind of you have some forces kind of like um, trading off against one another. And I think that's going to make for somewhat of a um, it may appear from afar like a, a lack of leadership in the market or direction in the market. You kind of ebb and flow from month to month. But I think what we're trying to determine really is uh, when will be the opportunity over the next 12 to 18 months, call it, to add more risk in a, you know, kind of a material or statistically significant way. Um, we're not there yet, I don't believe, you know, from doing our valuation analysis and also our forecasting on fundamental. But, you know, as always, when the price becomes reasonable for whatever reason, you act. And before you know it, if you do that in a serially correct fashion, before you know it, you've actually, in a very stealth-wise fashion, kind of gotten there, as opposed to like picking a point in time to say, okay, we're going from this stance in our portfolio to that. That's not how it should work. It should, If you're doing it right, it should actually happen stealthily. And before you know it, you're kind of moving with better risk-adjusted investment opportunities in the context of an equity or multi-asset portfolio. Let's talk about the homework a bit. So what do your, you and your team look for? Are, are there indicators saying, hey, things are changing now. Now let's let's get more risk on. I mean, what are the indicators you're looking at? What kind of homework are you really doing? So it really, for us on the research side, it really starts at a bottom-up fundamental standpoint. So we've been talking a lot about macro and macro obviously influences the aggregate demand for all goods and services. But then you know, you examine these investment opportunities at a bottom-up fundamental standpoint. You kind of see if the, you know, the micro is dovetailing with the macro, so to speak, right? And so what we're looking for is we're examining the companies that we're investing in, uh, you know, looking at their costs, expenses, aggregate demand, demand or sales, forecasting that, health of the balance sheet kind of going forward, and also kind of dovetailing that with both what their customers are saying and their supply chain might be saying, and where there's a mismatch, you know, obviously we, we might, it might pose some concern for us that we can further go back to that company and kind of ask more questions about the state of their business. And then more importantly, what we're forecasting over the next one, two, three years, and even beyond that, in terms of what we think the profit and cash flow uh, profile is going to look like for the company in question. So a lot of our work's really being done at a, at a micro level. Um, and all the while, we're kind of, as I said, kind of bouncing that off or dovetailing that with what we're seeing from a macroeconomic standpoint. Um, so just on, on the leadership, uh, you know, guiding the market, when we do see things start to shift, um, what will be the areas of the market that could lead the way um, Yeah, when things kind of change? Yeah, historically, when you go into a slowdown, you know, if you look at 100 years of history at, at the S&P, we'll use the S&P 500 because it's a nice diversified benchmark. Um, you know, you go into a slowdown in the general economy. Um, it, you're going to see groups like staples, utilities, healthcare. you know, generally speaking, industries that are not uh, they don't require a huge economic tailwind to continue to grow revenue and profits and, and uh, distribute capital back to shareholders. I mean, that's the general theme. Things that are more cyclical need an economic tailwind at their back to really kind of get into their, you know, stronger earnings profile, um, peak earning strength, so to speak. 
um, generally don't trade as well, right? And so the big rotation in the market comes historically at some time. If you indeed go into a recession, generally speaking, what you find is that the front end of the economy actually starts working relative to the market. So from an active return standpoint, about halfway through the recession. That, that's been categorically true pretty much in every recession. Now there's, there's two caveats in there. One, you gotta ask yourself, are we going into a recession or a mid-cycle slowdown? The profile of outperformance in terms of magnitude looks a little bit different in those two scenarios, but generally the leadership is the same as I described it. Um, but it also affects your timing about when you want to rotate into more cyclical areas of the economy, if indeed that's what you want to do. Um, the other thing you have to note is kind of, um, generally speaking, the, the yield curve, which is inverted today, starts actually turning positively sloping when the recession starts, right? And even economic news is gonna look sound really bad. Um, so if indeed that's what transpires over the next 12 months, um, that may be another cue combined with the fact that maybe global PMIs continue to fall, uh, maybe housing gets worse, um, you know, profits continue to get negatively revised. Investors should actually start leaning into risk as opposed to away from risk, right? We should be ahead of that you know, maybe lower beta stances in our portfolios, sectors that, again, as I say, don't require an economic tailwind. But then when you get the manifestation of that data, both on a micro and macro basis, you want to start leaning into risk. And I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of investors to do is like embrace risk when it sounds really bad. But you'll, if you give yourself a multi-year horizon, three to five years, you know, as I always say to our staff, listen, if you can buy a security with really high upside to peak earnings potential and really low downside, you just use the rule of doubling it. You know, if you think a security has more than 100% upside in it from kind of trough to peak, you're paid to wait five years at least, right? Because that's 15.6% compounded return a year. That generally beats the market. So that's why it's very important to kind of lean into risk if data gets worse. And that's, that's why I'm saying we gotta do our homework now because when the time, if and when the time comes, you got to be prepared and act in a very kind of um, dispassionate fashion, right? Because the homework's been done. Trust your analysis. Go and you know you'll you'll feel great after the fact for it, and you'll do best for your clients uh, when you look at your returns on a multi-year basis. What is the buying strategy here? Like, if, if you're sort of you you don't want to time the markets because you can't do that. You don't want to miss out on sort of the initial upswing. Um, you're worried about maybe getting in too early. What, how would you, you know, what's your recommendation on kind of how to actually act? Yeah, this is where I think, you know, we're really benefited at Fidelity from having the number of research resources that we do have. So we're kicking the, you know, we're, we're kicking the tires on all these investments and we're doing it across the globe, whether it's in Canada, the U.S., Europe, Asia. And so when you're pulling all this research into our databases and portfolio managers are looking at all this, you can spot the trends. You're sitting down with companies, you spot the trends, you see what's happening, and then you're doing your valuation analysis all the while. That's what's going to allow you to maybe make changes in your portfolio where something you've been successful with, you know, for the past, whatever, three to five years, or maybe even longer, you start to marginally sell that security down because you don't see the amount of upside uh, left in it, and at the same time, you cycle to something else uh, where you do see that preferable upside downside trade off. And and that's the homework. Like it, it, people are always saying you can't time the market, and you cannot. But if you do it at a single security level, and you're you're very smart about it, and you're very on top of it, 
you will catch a lot of these things. And as I said, stealthily, your portfolio over time will take on a, a different profile that's probably more levered at some point for a new economic cycle. So if you look at the globe right now, China's been in a growth recession. We are slowing. North America is slowing. Europe is slowing. Australia is slowing. You know, we're not going to sit here and predict whether it's going to be a hard landing or a soft landing. Time will tell, but we're doing our work at the profit level to kind of be prepared for either of those two scenarios. And if we do it well at a micro basis, on a bottom up basis, then our portfolio is naturally going to be geared to a better upside downside scenario for a new economic cycle whenever that comes to pass. Um, so we have been focusing on equities, but there's another another side to this that not a lot of people really wanted to talk about over the last maybe, uh, you know, little while. Um, fixed income. Um, are, do you find that institutions, your clients are rethinking their fixed income strategy? How do you how do you approach fixed income uh, today after last year's, you know, bad year? But things have changed. Now, as you said, last year was a, a bond bear market and and, uh, and rightly so, for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. Um uh, from the from the small sample size of our clients that I've talked to, uh, the answer to your question is yes. Those clients have been kind of reassessing um, their the portion of their overall portfolio in fixed income. Um, you know, if we continue to slow, um, certainly historically, uh, treasuries look appealing. Like if we continue to slow at some point, if you look at the market implied policy rates going forward for 2023, 2024, and 2025. You see a, a falling, you know, interest rate cycle at some point to kind of re-stimulate the economy. There are many people out there that say that the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada, and other central banks have tightened beyond the natural rate of interest. So that implies that we're in this kind of restrictive monetary backdrop now, as opposed to the one that we've experienced, you know, prior to the start of 2022. That was very accommodative, right? So, you know. Based on, again, past is prologue, Treasury should look good over that scenario. I would then, then, but by definition, certain investment grade bonds should also probably look okay. But that requires investors to do their diligence on a bottom up basis again to kind of discern what are risky and, and what aren't. So, um, you know, we're entering that again, we're slowing. All the macroeconomic data would suggest we're slowing. We don't know to the extent by how much, the magnitude and the duration, but under a slowing environment with maybe on a two to three year basis, a bias towards um, more uh, accommodative central bank policy, then those instruments I mentioned look, should look better. And even, even I mean, yeah, there there is the appreciation um, that you're talking about, but just just the yields now are higher. So that's that's got to help returns too. Right, exactly. You get it from yield and you get it from, you know, obviously uh, return uh, as well. Um, yeah, so I think that's that is the you know again from the small sample size of people I spoke to, that's kind of what they're kind of reconsidering. You know, do you find that um, there's is, is there is it more talk now, or are you actually seeing people make make those adjustments yet, or is sort of maybe now the time to to actually stop talking about it and maybe make some of those changes? I'll say this: I haven't seen it in data, so industry wide data. Like, so if you look at the industry wide data. Um, but there, there's several things to kind of consider. I, I don't know if this is um, this will actually occur or not. But you have to remember, in 2020, if you look at the United States, kind of being, you know, obviously a, a very large market to examine in terms of investment in equities, it was 
off the charts, flows into equities in the back half of 2020 and even into 2021 were very, very high. Now, if you imagine at some point, if you think that uh, retail and possibly institutional clients are disproportionately exposed to equities for those reasons, that's an assumption on my part. But if you take that, that data as a whole that I've seen from uh, various uh, third-party vendors and whatnot, um, you would say, think that some of that, even a fraction of that, um, big kind of inflow into equities in, in that period of time that I mentioned has to flow back somewhere, right? So maybe it goes to fixed income, maybe it, it's um, it's term deposits, maybe, you know, we'll, we'll, time will tell where it is, but certainly I guess maybe the ingredients are ripe for some kind of asset allocation, redistribution to change um, the look of, of whether it's individuals or institutionals, uh, multi-asset portfolios. Just shifting gears quickly, we only have a couple minutes left, but you mentioned China before. Um, and, you know, that's reopening. I think some people are excited about that, uh, you know, how, how that could impact the economy. But what's your take on China's reopening? Does it give the global economy a boost or, or where do you think uh, that can play out? From a simply a mathematical standpoint, it should give um, a little boost to the global economy. Um, the question, I think, when asking you can't look at China in a vacuum, though. So you got China, which may kind of increase its economic activity, and that has a natural kind of demand function for various basic materials, goods, services, et cetera. The question then becomes is some of the other stuff that's kind of continuing to contract, does that completely offset it and more? Or So while it, while it helps, um, we live in a global marketplace that is more intertwined than, you know, it, you know, if you compare these last 20 years to the previous 100, it's we're more intertwined than we have been. So I'm always a little bit, of, I'm a little cautious around kind of knee-jerk reactions as it pertains to one large economy, kind of saying, oh, it's it's getting better while all these other ones are, at least from what the data we see, is are slowing. And, and so... Um, you know, the natural reaction in China, well, that means good things for copper, that means good things for oil, that means good things for certain um, services, um, because travel can, you know, um, be done and, and that has knock-on effects for various service industries. And um, it's a natural knee-jerk reaction. It, I'm very, I'm always very trepidatious at making like grand conclusions for that. I understand why the knee-jerk reaction leads to maybe short-term movements in stock prices or certain security prices. But, you know, we're not investing for like a quarter here. So we're trying to paint a picture that we think is reasonable on a multi-year basis from a risk reward standpoint. So we got to kind of ferret out what, what all that means on a multi-year basis, as opposed to what it might mean over the next three to six months. And just on the, the, the risk on uh, topic here, um, if you are, you, you talked about some sectors and the leadership changing, but are there any parts maybe outside of Canada or globally or types of, in, uh, you know, um, investments that um, people may want to look at as we move into that risk on um, space? Certainly, there's a disparity right now in valuation between um, the U.S. and kind of, I'll just say like the non-U.S., particularly the uh, European um, areas of the market. Um, and you're kind of seeing that at the start of the year, the European markets have been behaving better. Um, XUS is looking from a strictly evaluation spread perspective, maybe a little bit better, um, you know, and we've even seen within the US, if you take out like the big mega caps, the rest of the markets actually have been looking good. It's like in Q4, the 
it's the biggest ones, the Facebooks and the Microsofts of the world that have been not been behaving as well. Um, I think there's a valuation um, spread that might be closing in the short term. Um, you have to remember though, um, and this is not a prediction, it's kind of a what if scenario basis. If the global economy continues to slow and if that slowdown um, and that profit contraction is worse than Wall Street estimates right now, you always have to remember the US dollar is a low beta currency. It is a reserve currency of the world that generally tends to do well. That further tightens the economy. When the US dollar is strong, which it was last year, um, pretty much relative to any currency out there, that, that's, a, that's a tough thing for the globe to overcome. So you have to kind of trade those things off. And obviously, once central bank policy changes, and you look at the way it's relatively changing amongst the big central banks, that will dictate the fate of currencies if the US dollar should get weaker in a new, as it should during a new economic cycle when things look better and the market prepares for a new uh, cycle, then you would expect things in rest of the world, emerging markets to start to look better as well. So all this stuff is kind of tied together and you gotta kind of follow it around where the economic cycle is kind of going. So these are, again, they're not predictions, they're kind of like what if scenarios and you, uh, you gotta determine how you're gonna, uh, invest accordingly as these scenarios possibly play out, or you have more data to say this is more, this is much more likely or probable to occur, and you invest accordingly. Well, it should be an exciting year, uh, nonetheless, um, and we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.